for instance, what I'm doing currently is that I'm combining the wind speeds of the storms to the power cuts in Finland. And uh, I have uh, data, this power cut data, for instance, of 13 years. And then I'm trying to like find correlations between the wind speeds and some other parameters of the windstorm uh, and see how they correlate with the, with these these power cuts. And we do this, or I, I try to do this in my PhD because that is something useful for the society. So if we have more knowledge about these topics, then the emergency management, the civil protection is, is able to uh, possibly do some risk estimations or be prepared, more prepared for them, for the storms, hopefully. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, I am a PhD candidate myself, and in each episode I chat with another early career researcher, or ECR, about their academic journeys. Today's guest is Ilona Langritter. After having studied meteorology at Helsinki, Ilona started working as a weather forecaster at the Finnish Meteorological Institute. It was only a few years later that she decided to go back to academia and in addition to her job, pursue a PhD in the field of storm research. Before we get into presenting the weather on TV and into storms and crisis management, I'd like to mention that we also have a Facebook, Twitter and Instagram account, as well as a YouTube channel and blog on our website. We invite you to check it out and subscribe so that you get regular updates about our upcoming guests and also tips and tricks that we have learned from other ECRs and would like to share with you. We'd love to hear from you, so do let us know what you think. So let's get back now to Ilona's story. Ilona Langritte has a background in biology and chemistry, but she has a BSc in physics and meteorology from Helsinki University uh, and in the time of her studies, she also went on an exchange semester abroad at the University of Leeds. And there she focused on atmospheric sciences. Ilona then also did a minor in management and international business at Aalto University, which is also in Finland. And then did her MSc in meteorology at the University of Helsinki as well. She then worked as a weather forecaster for the Finnish Meteorological Institute, or the FMI, which is easier to pronounce, <laughs> and also worked on international development programs that dealt with warning systems, with modernization and climate change in countries including Cuba, Vietnam, Fiji and Nepal. After a few years, Ilona then decided to do a PhD in addition to her job at the FMI with a focus on storm research. So welcome to our show, Ilona. I have so many questions for you, as your journey seems so fascinating. How are you doing today? <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me to this show. And uh, I'm doing really well today. Thanks. And you? How are you, Dani? I'm also really good. I'm happy it's the end of my day uh, and that I can now open my amaretto drink <laughs> and really enjoy it without having to work afterwards. What did you bring with you? Well, my drink is a bit less interesting, um, although I, I would guess that mine is a bit healthier also because I brought a glass of water 
Uh, and Finnish tap water is actually known to be one of the most, the cleanest water in, in the world. So I drink this every day and it's really tasty. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to cheer regardless of what people think that sometimes it's bad luck to cheer with water. But if it's that healthy, I'll take the risk. Cheers. Cheers. This is super healthy. <laughs> All right. While we're sipping the drink. <laughs> and you're becoming more healthy with every sip. <laughs> I want to start with some short questions. And my first one is, what does the typical morning of a Finnish weather forecaster look like? Well, um, a typical morning of a forecaster uh, looks like that you, first of all, you start your day usually to getting into the weather. You know, you need to... Um, see very many different uh, model forecasts. So we have weather models that uh, the forecasters are following and uh, they are updated several times per day. And then based on those models, um, our duty is to update always the forecast and then um, distribute it um, to the public. So for instance, issue some weather warnings or then uh, make some text for newspapers or even um, give some radio interviews some days. Oh, okay. So that is a typical day of a weather forecast, yes. That actually leads me to my next question, but maybe you've answered it a little bit already. And that is, what do you think is the most common misperception that people have of a weather forecast? Well... I think that often it is seen um, as as much more simple work than it is actually. Uh, so basically, often if people come to see our our uh, spot at work, they might be quite shocked because there is actually uh, like eight screens in front of us, and it looks like uh, we are doing something like super important and of course there's a lot of uh, things that and a lot of occupations that depend on on our uh, forecasts so it's also an um, important task really so i think that often people think that it's it's much more simple than it is and we need to also make a lot of decisions during the daily shift so you always need to pick one forecast that you present for for people even though there's several different uh, paths that you could um, choose actually and it depends always a bit um, who is doing the forecast of the day because every meteorologist is an individual so they have also different perceptions of the weather models right i think yeah you have a good point there where you said that people might think that it's much more basic than the job actually is. Because yeah. I remember that as a kid, I was like, oh, it would be really cool to be a weatherman because all you have to do is yeah. just stand in front of the TV and say if it's going to rain or not, <laughs> like reading from a script or something. But yeah. you actually do the work behind it and you're you're giving the forecast based on your own work from before, right? Yeah, yeah. Except uh, it depends also on, on the country. So in some countries... Um, the people who present it on television, it, it's not necessarily, they are not necessarily metrologists. So they might be presenting the work of metrologists. But um, the most of the countries that I know, 
there they start to have the real meteor- meteorologist on online also. So they have actually done the forecast themselves. That is interesting. All right. Uh, a last question that has to do with your TV experience. I was just really okay. interested in that. That's why I focused my questions on that. Yeah. But then afterwards, we'll talk about uh, science and your academic yeah, Perfect. So the last one is, what is one of the scariest weather phenomena that you have predicted or even experienced yourself? Scariest? Hmm. Um, well, in Finland, we are very lucky because we don't have like... Uh, very 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 extreme weather so um for instance we don't have hurricanes or typhoons or any anything like that can be super destructive so in that sense i um haven't had to really focus on on very very extreme um phenomena and that is also something that, of course, in, from the perspective of meteorologists, that would be very interesting to forecast uh, these kind of phenomena. Um, but yeah, I would say maybe um, it would be some kind of a low pressure storm. So like a big windstorm that you really start to um, follow several days before the storm actually hits. And then you're like... Um, giving information to to all the all the um, parts of the country so for instance you need to need to inform um, emergency authorities or power companies or or uh, agriculture that there's now a really big storm coming and then they need all the time a new update of how does it look on their their area and what kind of impacts will it have so it's I think it must be some of the windstorms that we have had because that is a major issue issue in Finland. Okay, definitely doing some damage. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, I'm I'm a bit glad to hear that it wasn't anything too extreme. No, <laughs> I haven't experienced no. that yet. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would really like to see a tornado though. Um, even though I mean from very far, I wouldn't want to experience it and it's it's um I'm happy also that we don't have have those phenomena in Finland. Well, maybe one day on another travel trip, you'll be able to yeah. see one. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. All right. Well, now that I <laughs> heard more about the weather, um, I'm also ready to hear more about your academic journey. Um, and I don't really know anything about your field, right? I'm a political scientist. I, I work on migration very different area. Um, yeah. So I was wondering, how do you get from uh, a bachelor and a background with bio- biology, with chemistry, with physics, and also a minor in management and international business, which sounds very different again. Uh, how do how do you combine all of that and then eventually end up in meteorology? Well, um, like most of my studies in the end, they were meteorology. So I was like clear, clearly uh, mostly uh, focusing on meteorology in my studies. Um, so that's why. And also I really think actually that quite few people nowadays, they are only doing one thing or they are specialists in one very narrow area of science. And to me, because um, I'm dealing nowadays also in my research and in my 
field very much with, of course, with climate change. I think that it helps me actually that I have a background and an understanding about also about um, different topics like like international uh, management and and international what is what is happening in in the world in general. And actually, I would say that our um, fields are not so far from each other if you are dealing with migration because of course like we know that very a massive migration can be also related to climate change and therefore i also need to understand something about your field you know because um, these are the impacts that we need to control and we need to understand in the future to be be able to also to manage this uh, massive crisis as climate change. That's interesting. So you're saying we should actually team up and write an article together about totally. migration and climate change. <laughs> Who knows? We'll stay in touch. <laughs> All right. Um, so you're saying everything was actually really close to each other. So it wasn't really a big switch or anything like that. No, maybe I would say that the cell and molecular biology that I um, haven't been able to use too much in my current job so that is quite far but yeah otherwise otherwise everything is very much connected all right and then following these first studies that you've done uh, you worked as like you said a weather forecaster at the Finnish Meteorological Institute and so I wanted to know what does one have to do to qualify to be a forecaster and and what does a weather forecaster do that relates to the studies that you've done before okay very nice question um, yes, so you need to be, you need to have a master's degree in, I think, in physics, either in physics or then uh, metrology. So that is that is the first qualification. And then, um, yeah, then you basically learn in the work. So, so that okay. is um, kind of like a lot of things they don't teach about forecasting in the university, because at least in in my university, uh, the studies were very theoretical, so we were calculating complex um, uh, equations, but we didn't really like learn the practical side of the forecasting, and that I only learned in the forecasting office. And then, actually, at some point in the forecasting, like the learning curve is in the beginning very very steep. So you, you are learning a lot of things and it's, it's very interesting and exciting and, you know, but during the years, like uh, I also did that work uh, for seven years. So I started to like at some point feel that, okay, it, it has become a routine. So every year in, in a way, the same phenomena, the weather uh, events are, are happening again and you start to already have a routine which is also good for a forecaster and no tornadoes yeah no tornadoes and nothing <laughs> too unexpected <laughs> um so yeah uh you just start to feel or at least i because i'm i'm a person who wants to learn constantly something new so i really felt like starting a new challenge that was maybe the main drive and and to start to look into storms a bit more detailed. All right. I actually looked at your resume and therefore I recognize what you're saying, that you were looking for more things to do, more variety in your work. 
Um, and I saw on that resume that you worked lots on really crazy amounts of different projects uh, in addition <laughs> to the job as a weather forecaster, both in Finland and projects that were also based abroad. I already mentioned that you worked on international development programs that also dealt with the warning systems, climate change in countries such as Cuba, Vietnam, Fiji, Nepal. I think there were a few more countries on the list like Bhutan. Yeah. So how did you get into all these different projects? Yeah, I think that um, our institute, so the Finnish Meteorological Institute is in a way, it's a quite a nice place to work because um, it's also besides the forecasting work, uh, we have, we do a lot of development projects in, in uh, less developed countries. And therefore, um, like we get, because we have quite a, quite a good education in Finland and um, like a good base knowledge. So we can go also to other countries and tell a bit like how, how we do uh, weather forecasting. And we are uh, one of, I mean, yeah, this is really tough for a humble Finnish person to say, but we are really one, like a leading country in weather forecasting in, in the world. So therefore, um, there was a lot of opportunities for, for us forecasters also, if we were interested to go abroad and if we were interested to, to do these kind of trainings um, in, in other countries, weather forecasting offices. So that's why I have been, I think, there on the list, there's like 12 countries, 10 to 12 countries at least, um, and very exotic places like Kyrgyzstan or uh, South Pacific uh, nations and really small islands. And I'm really thankful for my, my job to offering these opportunities. It sounds, it sounds pretty cool that your job offers you all these optional things to do, right? Because you said it's only yeah. if you want to, it's not something that you have to do as part of the job. Yeah, yeah it was completely on an optional basis, yes. Okay, and are you able to tell me which project most interested you? Um, it's very difficult to uh, rate them because like you always go into a new country and you meet a different culture. You meet also a different working environment and um, they are in different ways, like very, very unique experiences because you always connect also with the, with the people. And one thing that I really noticed in in these trips was that we really um, like forecasters no matter where you go we understand each other like we understand what okay. kind of challenges we have and and what kind of um, um, things in the weather happen and and somehow we are always on the same level so that's why it's very easy to go into different forecasting offices so maybe if I would need to pick some like a favorite, then it would be probably the trip to South Pacific, where I visited Fiji, Vanuatu and Solomon Islands. And um, it was amazing because it was so different from um, the surroundings where I'm from, uh, from cold and snowy Finland. Mm -hmm. um, but also because people were so motivated there and, and they were really eager to learn. And that was that's always very rewarding when you go go to uh, teach people and train people. 
That sounds very good. I have to say I'm jealous. <laughs> I hope that one day I get to go to these islands as well. Uh, that is, if they don't all have to migrate because of climate change, unfortunately, because yeah. there's actually something exactly in my field that they talk about a lot, especially the island nations. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's sometimes like very tough also because of the traveling, because of the time difference, <laughs> and then you need to be able to work with the short notice. So it's not all, only beautiful beaches. And so right. <laughs> and you always get back eventually to snowy Finland. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so it seems like you actually have plenty going on in your job. Yes. And then after a few years, you did decide to go back to academia in a way. And in addition to your job, pursue a PhD as well. Yes. How about that? How did that come about? <laughs> well, uh, I think that that's, again, one crazy idea one additional thing that I needed a new challenge or something um, so yeah and also it's a bit related to because I also work in some uh, um, European projects and um, uh, they were like more like research projects and there I sometimes like noticed or also in these other international projects that I noticed that I didn't necessarily get my my views so so easily to be considered as um, something serious uh, because I was just <laughs> a master of science. So okay. so sometimes I I was feeling a bit also that um, okay like should I really have a PhD that people would would like listen to me and um, yeah so. Maybe that was part of it. And then partly it was that I um, wanted new challenges also. So it was really a combination. You needed another yes. challenge, even though there was yeah. plenty going on. But I think it's always good for your self-development to keep trying something new and try something that you know is a bit difficult and scares you a bit maybe, but then try it anyway. Yeah, a bit um, uncomfortable, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you're also saying that the title might make a big difference for you in your field, in what you do. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe it was also like inside of my head. It could be because uh, I'm not sure if it's really like that. But sometimes I got the feeling that maybe if I would have that small uh, PhD there in front of my name, then somebody would take me a bit more seriously. <laughs> okay, well... Hopefully soon you'll find out once you get yeah. to put that title in front of your exactly. name. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So tell me about your PhD. What are you researching? So my topic, my PhD topic is, is basically about uh, windstorms in Finland and uh, their impacts on the social aspects so basically um, what kind of like uh, power cuts they are causing or some emergencies and I'm investigating uh, that basically and the characteristics of the of the storms and what makes them damaging for the society that is interesting and that was short too very good <laughs> have you been doing some psychon some science communication already <laughs> No, but I just um, often think that uh, it's it's better to keep it short and, and simple. <laughs> right. 
at least to start with. But I am uh, interested in uh, a little bit more because we are an academic podcast after all. So we can yeah, have more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Then I have maybe been used to to have it like a very short and simple version of what I'm doing. But yeah, basically um, what I'm currently uh, working on is to find a bit more about the characteristics of the windstorms. So for instance, I'm interested in, in their wind speeds and um, does that actually matter from what direction do the windstorms arrive to our country? So because, and this is based on my observations in the forecasting office. So I noticed that um, often the forecasters, they have actually, they have a conceptual model in their head. They know that, okay, if the, if the storm comes from southwest, then we are expecting some damages in the, in the eastern Finland. Because um, often the strongest winds of windstorm are actually located somewhere on the southern side, side of the low pressure center, basically. Okay. So, so therefore, um, the forecasters are often, um, they, they have an um, idea where the strongest wind gusts might be. And there they also, then they know to, where to give them these warnings and so on. Uh, but I kind of like noticed that no, nobody has really documented this. So, so I didn't find any papers about this, this topic, um, any scientific publications. And therefore I started to like think that, okay, I want to, I want to do this because this is like nobody put it on, on the paper yet. So I, I want to investigate, is it really like this? Can we really use some measurement data and then combine it with the impacts? For instance, what I'm doing currently is that I'm combining the wind speeds of the storms to the power cuts in Finland. And uh, I have uh, data, this power cut data, for instance, of 13 years. And then I'm trying to like find correlations between the wind speeds and some other parameters of the windstorm uh, and see how they correlate with, the, with these, these power cuts. And we do this, or I, I try to do this in my PhD, because that is something useful for the society. So then um, if we have more knowledge about these topics, then the emergency management, the civil protection is, is able to uh, possibly do some risk estimations or be prepared, more prepared for them, for the storms in future, right. hopefully. That sounds good. Yeah, so it is a research that you think is also very useful um, yeah. outside of your field for everyone out there who might be suffering from these windstorms and then power cuts uh, as a result. Yeah, yeah. I just and we are ask... so dependent on electricity nowadays. So most oh, of us yeah. wouldn't even know, like, what would we do if we have a power cut of few hours? I don't even know if I have candles here, actually. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Maybe I should get some just in case, because I don't know about the weather here. Exactly. Like, too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the tip. Uh, what I did want to ask you about your research, as you have explained it right now, um, is that you're using data from Finland. 
and that yes. this is also where you worked in. So this is where you have the data from, and this is where your knowledge also lies. But do you think that your research eventually is only going to be relevant for Finland, or would you be able to like create a model that is also applicable to other places in the world? Yeah. So basically, what I'm doing currently, it's um, it is like, of course, it's benefiting Finland. Firstly, but I think it's it's transferable to to other countries also, which are experiencing uh, low pressure windstorms. Um, so basically, the whole European area, at least, probably like northern uh, um, states also, and and so on. So basically, um, like all the countries which have windstorms and it is a hazard uh, there, then I think that they can uh, possibly use also my my method and my methodology, even though they wouldn't have exactly the similar data that I I have, but the basic idea would work also elsewhere, I believe. So that makes it extra interesting. That's very nice. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. At least to me, it's interesting. So, Yeah, and that's very important that you like what you're doing. Um, because yeah. you're not only doing the PhD, you're also working at the same time at the FMI, right? Yes, exactly. exactly. So how is your experience as a part-time worker and a part-time PhD student? Um, yeah, it's it's um, not always easy. So it's um, because my funding basically for my PhD, it comes from different projects. So um I have a permanent position in in FMI, um, but and then I have like all the freedom to do the PhD, and and it doesn't need to be like in um, or they don't require me to do it in in four years or three years or so on. So it's more from the university side um, that they want me to finish in certain time span. Um, but yeah, so the funding. Uh, comes from many different sources, many different projects. And that means also that sometimes I need to do things which are not beneficial for for my PhD. And that is also why uh, it can be sometimes a bit of a puzzle to really like find longer periods when you're just focusing on your uh, research. Because as we all know, research doesn't uh, happen during a half a day when you have a bit of a um, space in your calendar. Like you cannot immediately focus on writing or reading or coding something. So you need um, several days often to do that and be really focused on it and be really in it. So maybe I I feel that sometimes uh, the scatteredness of tasks is a bit of a challenge for me and that has maybe or that is a bit slowing my PhD down also but I I have decided that I I at least don't put too much pressure on on myself so I don't put my expectations like very high like when I have to um, or when I would have to graduate or so on Um, because I'm most likely anyways continuing to working in the in the same same institute uh, after my PhD and therefore um, it doesn't make so big difference like when when it is actually ready but it's also it's something that I have 
needed to um, tell myself several times that, okay, uh, don't put too much pressure on yourself, that it will, um, it will get ready, ready when it gets ready. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Uh, that you're saying, I was struggling with it before. Like you definitely felt the yeah. pressure and the heat, maybe coming from academia, as you said, because the university would want you to finish within a certain time frame. And yeah. at your job, they're more relaxed with that because you're already working for them and you might keep working for them. So they're okay with it. Um, yeah. But at what point were you able to convince yourself that, you know what? It's okay. It will it will get finished and that's something you're focusing on, but I don't have to feel the heat every second of the day and just be stressed about it because I feel like I went through a similar thing. Of course, I yeah. see is different, different institutions. I'm only doing it because yeah. I don't have a job on the side. Yeah. Um, but there was a time where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in my third year. I only have one year left. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm not going to yeah. do uh, And then at some point it just clicked. I was like, I can stress out about it. Or I can just try and do as much as I can and then we'll see what happens yeah. afterwards. So I was wondering for you, like, what was the click? Where did it change for you? Um, well, maybe it was actually this year um, because I had a period now, especially during COVID, uh, because, yeah, there was um, not too much things to do except to, like, uh, study or do your PhD and then do your work at home and there was not too much other things going on naturally so I was I was really studying a lot uh, during last winter I think uh, and also I was I was really progressing with my PhD which was good um, but then at some point because I was pushing a bit too hard also at some point um, I noticed that okay if I keep on doing like this, then then it's not going to be good for for myself because I'm exhausted. I'm really um, I'm not enjoying this, and I have like um, too much pressure on, or I'm questioning very much. Like, okay, can I do this? Uh, do I am I qualified enough to finish this, and and so on. So then I at some point decided that okay. Um, like it, it is all the time if I keep on doing with some kind of a pace these things that I don't quit completely then it's going forward uh, and it's sometimes like really painful because then you need to might need to recalculate some things or some results or re redo things in your paper and then you especially feel that this is not never gonna end <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it was, it was kind of, I needed to go quite close to being really, really exhausted and really mentally also worn out, um, to notice that, okay, now I need to, um, make a line here and stop for a while, uh, demanding so much from myself. It sounds like a good idea at that point, because you don't want to get an actual burnout, and it also could have such a huge toll on your on your mental health, right? If you keep pushing yeah. too hard. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we are not meant to um, be able to just push forward like continuously for years and years, you know? You need some breaks sometimes. Right. And in the meantime, you are doing it, right? You are working and you're doing a PhD. Yeah. And there was yeah. a pandemic. 
and you're still okay. So I think you're yeah. doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> If that's the score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe now is a good time to tell everyone that we actually almost met each other here in Germany, where I'm now. Uh, yeah. Because you've also been doing a Euro trip. Uh -huh. right? Is that something you did um, to break a little bit um, your pattern of working from home and studying from home all the time? Yeah, it, it was not only for that. It was basically um, mine and my husband's honeymoon uh, that we were doing oh. on a camper van. And um, we had been kind of like dreaming about this, like doing this for a while. And he uh, finished his uh, PhD just before that trip. So basically, then we just decided that, okay, now is a good time before he starts to work in a new um, occupation. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was just a few months in between. And then I, I noticed that I have a lot of accumulated vacations from work. So I just told my work that, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> I'm two <laughs> months off. And also from my PhD, I was two months off and... And then I was like thinking like, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen really? Like I graduate two months later, like, so what? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any difference. Very good. And how was the trip? Was it worth it? <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It was really, really nice um, Euro trip. I think we drove like uh, 8,000 kilometers with this camper van. Wow. So <laughs> It was great, and we got a bit of an extension for the summer. Otherwise, uh, all, uh, November and October are really dark months in, in Finland already. So in Southern Europe, they were not so dark, and it was very relaxing and nice. <laughs> That sounds really great. Yeah, um, taking a break is very important. If you can, like you said, if you have the days... <laughs> and you still yeah. deserve them <laughs> then you can definitely take them and go on a trip together um and you said that your partner also finished his phd congratulations yes yes thank you <laughs> i will tell him <laughs> how uh how has his experience um affected you about doing a phd did you start around the same time or did you already see what he was doing when you started um We kind of, we, we met uh, through work, actually, and um, I was maybe in the beginning or like just about to start my PhD and he was, um, he had just started his PhD. So it has not really influenced like my decision to start PhD, but like so many times it has been so beneficial to me to uh, have him there to to kind of like uh, share the experiences uh, about these different uh, emotional things that you go also through PhD because yeah I mean you often if you are just alone doing it and then you feel like that uh, I'm not going anywhere with this or you're struggling with something then you feel you might feel that okay this is only happening to me You know, that there's something wrong with me and everyone else has it so easy. But that is really not the case. And in that sense, it really helped me because he he was always like around one year ahead of me. 
So also the, the emotional curve was like one year ahead of me. So he was like always telling me like, okay, okay, that's the phase when you're really frustrated, but don't worry, soon you will see the light in the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so it, it helped me really. <laughs> yeah, I bet it does. That sounds actually really nice to have a partner who's going through it just a little bit before you. So you might know yeah. a little bit what to expect. Of course, everyone has their own very personal experiences. Um, yeah. But I was also curious. I'm not sure what field he's done his PhD in or uh, where. And you don't have to tell me everything about his experience because it was different. Yeah. But I was wondering if you've noticed any differences in a man doing a PhD and a woman doing a PhD. Um, well, our like experiences have been very, very different. Um, so I like our experiences are not, um, they are not basically in any way gender related. Um, so the environment was just so different because he did it in a different country, uh, did it in Spain and I did it um, here in Finland or I'm doing it here in Finland. And also he was working for a university and I was working or I'm working for an organization. So like very, very, different um, backgrounds in a way and very, very different working environments. So yeah, I would say that he had it much tougher than I have had it so far uh, because of um, like things with the instructor and um, like many, many things which, which I have had it really nicely because for instance, my um, my uh, instructor of, of my thesis is is very he's I would say also that he's nowadays very good friend of mine and um, okay. we have a super trusting and super like uh, nice relation but I know that to many people for many people this is not not the case and um, that was for instance one big difference uh, between my mine and my husband's PhDs. So yeah, maybe the there uh, we didn't really notice any, or there was no like gender related differences, but it was more like the working culture and and, and the atmosphere and yeah. But he's he's otherwise like in a, on a quite similar field than I am. So basically, sometimes I I was able to also ask from him like something like okay. Uh, is this complete nonsense what I'm doing here or like, does it make any sense to you and so on? So yeah, um, was very useful or very nice. Sounds like it. And you made it through at least his PhD together. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and you got to go on the honeymoon. So everything yeah, ended up quite well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. For sure. It needed a lot of flexibility from both both of our sides to do PhDs at the same time. Right. Okay. Well, I hope that in the uh, last bits that you have to do, he will also be able to support you while he's going to start his new adventure. And as I am more interested in you than in yeah. him, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's actually the last question and also the most important one of this podcast. And that is after the PhD, right? What are you going to do with that? Yeah, that is a very good question, and um, I I have um, gave it a thought a bit. Um, so I think that 
somehow now with all my other other work also what I'm, I'm doing in my organization I'm shifting all the time a bit more to to a, a side of like uh, being in touch with people who are uh, making policies so regarding climate change regarding extreme weather and preparedness and so on and um, I really like to work with people like uh, regarding different uh, catastrophe uh, risks and so on and estimating those and um, and being an expert there so therefore I would think that uh, after my PhD I would like to try to work for UN for instance or um, or to some other like um, international institutes that are somehow dealing with climate change or or um or like even like early warning systems or or so on and um with the phd i hope that i'm uh, even more qualified to maybe apply to places where uh, i could take a lead of some project that is very interesting and important to me so for instance um it can be an interesting research project or it can be then a project in developing countries that I would not necessarily other, otherwise have the qualification to actually lead that project or, or even um, I wouldn't get a funding to start a project like that without PhD. So maybe like something like these could be a possible route for me after my PhD. So I think that I don't Never say never, uh, but I think I don't, I don't see myself having a very um, straightforward academical career after mm-hmm. my PhD. So maybe I don't end up being a professor in a university. But as I have also before said, I used to say when I was doing my master's that I'm never going to be a researcher. <laughs> so, <laughs> so therefore... It might change also. Who knows? Maybe one day um, you will be interviewing me for being a professor somewhere. <laughs> That's the next thing, the professor podcast. And then you yeah, have done it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds, sounds like you have a few options open. And of course, you also still have time to think about it because at the moment you, you have a job and the uh, yeah. PhD is coming along, but you're taking your time, which is absolutely fine as we discussed yeah yeah um and it's it's very nice to hear that you're also interested in uh, in leading some projects um, yeah i think that totally. that makes sense to me now that you said okay i will probably need the title and a doctor um, yeah doctorate exactly. to be able to do that yeah sounds sounds very cool all right then i think i've asked uh most of my questions that i had about your academic journey, uh, which has not come to an end yet. So we'll see where that goes and where it ends <laughs> up. Yeah. But I only have a few last short questions left. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Has been anyways, nice, nice to talk about my things. <laughs> Such a long time. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you also just need to let it out. And it's like you said, sometimes you get tired of your projects and you're not sure why you're doing it anymore because who's going to read it anyway. There are people out there who are interested in your work. So 
don't fool yourself with the imposter syndrome. Uh, you are totally capable of doing it, and we're all interested in listening to it. <laughs> nice. So it was it was nice. Yeah. <laughs> so my first last question of the three is: <laughs> What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? And of course, that means so far. Most important contribution. Hmm. Um, well, I think. Um, well, my my research will first of all hopefully be significant also not only for fellow researchers, but hopefully uh, it will help also our society to be more prepared for windstorms and and uh, other other weather related phenomena. So I think it's important to do also. I mean, probably most of us we are doing research to then uh, benefit the whole social system and and yeah the whole nation and the whole world so we want to make an impact right i think that's also my goal that's why every day after the news we watch the weather because we want to know as normal people living in any place in the world what the weather is going to be like the next day because it will affect us yeah yeah sure <laughs> then the next one is who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I need to pick also um, in a way a simple example. So I need to pick my husband. I mean, I could probably like pick some really um, important scientist and so on, but I will pick my husband because I'm really proud how he he did his PhD and he really became an expert in his field. And also he was like unbelievably gritty uh, during this, this um, difficult period also of his life. And he just didn't give up. And that is something that I'm really maybe like uh, admiring the most. People who don't give up, even though it's, it's tough sometimes. Right. Well, I really like that you mentioned your husband. <laughs> I think that's very cute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he has his doctorate despite his struggles, like you mentioned. Yeah. So uh, that exactly. is that is impressive. Very yeah. good. All right. Then, then I just have a last one, and that's supposed to be the easiest one. Okay. How do you relax after a hard day of work? Well, um, there are several ways. So um, sometimes I'm if it's winter, then it's it's pretty dark and cold here in, in Finland. And then you spend a lot of time inside. And that's why, well, I uh, one of my hobbies is to knit. So I might be knitting like uh, some sweaters or then some beanies and stuff like that. Um, and that really relaxes you because then you are not like actually in front of a screen. You're not necessarily on your, like in front of your phone or like, um, yeah. So it's, it's perfect. I think it's a good disconnection, good way to disconnect. And if it's summer, then I would go um, and feel our inflatable kayak and go for paddling to the archipelago here in Helsinki. <laughs> Oh, wow. That sounds very nice. It's a very nice hobby, yes. I was about to say knitting is not on my list yet. I'm going to add it with things to do and to try. 
<laughs> which I could do here in Leipzig, but the kayaking would be more problematic, even though it sounds yeah. really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's not too many water areas there, right? <laughs> no. Leipzig. No, very dry. The Dutch girl feels like the water is missing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I totally understand that. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and for sharing your story with all of us. And I also want to thank the audience specifically, again, for listening. Don't forget to connect with us on social media, on YouTube, and to check out our website. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. All right. So we got to talk about a lot of things. Um, including your work and the PhD and your husband. <laughs> right? And while you were saying everything, and that's maybe also why I asked the question about maybe differences in gender um, mm -hmm. with doing the PhD, you said before, maybe people don't take me seriously if I yeah. don't have a doctor, a doctorate. Yeah. Right? Like maybe there's this stereotypical idea of seeing a blonde woman on TV presenting the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and then she doesn't have a doctorate then why should we listen to her <laughs> yeah yeah and especially like in some projects because um i i have been um part of really really technical projects and because of my background in the physics and so on so they are often like very much like um i think maybe 70 to 80 percent are are men um okay And um, then often it's like, okay, a youngish uh, girl comes to the project uh, with blonde hair and so on. And um, then it's a, somehow a very surprising, first of all, often for, for others. And then like, um, then it's a bit, you need to a tiny bit more do effort or make some effort to convince people that you actually know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh Yeah, like this kind of experiences, especially when I'm and when I was a bit like uh, younger and when I was like starting my career, then then it I was like not so I didn't know myself so well yet, and I wasn't so comfortable of uh, presenting and so on, and therefore uh, I was not so sure about myself and. Um, Then I often like questioned, can I do this? And uh, am I um, good enough? And what do they think about me? And so on. So, yeah. So maybe it's it also developed with time that I sometimes had these experiences that um, like nobody listens to me or or they are just talking to me about like some fun stuff, not about. Um, what we are actually doing in a project. And uh, then I also, partly then I also decided that, okay, then when I show the PhD to them, then they will listen to me, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, but maybe also, as you said, like as you become older, it's not the extra years on you that people can maybe see that you're not young anymore. I think it's also that the way yeah. you handle these situations become different, right? You won't allow these 70% of men in the room to ask you how your weekend was anymore. You just want to get into the project that you came to discuss, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, it's still something that needs to change from their side, 
not so much from you, uh, but you have managed to learn how to navigate this world. Yeah. Um, and I hope that for that because you're there, and because more women will get into this field, uh, yeah. that will change for the next generations. Totally. Yeah. I I remember the other day, maybe um, a few months ago, I um, there was in the Finnish television this kind of a mini series and there was one episode uh, which was dealing about um, women in the academia and it was kind of like a bit of a like a humoristic show but it was also like there was examples which were really felt like from my life <laughs> okay. and there was like examples where a person went to a scientific conference and then like a female um, PhD student and then she was talking to other people there and then there was also a male um, PhD student and then the professor was basically only uh, talking to the male and listening to what the male was, mm-hmm. was saying and then the female tried to get to the conversation but was somehow all the time like she was asked like could you bring some coffee (laughs) or something like this Uh, it was a bit like made too harsh also so but there was some some truth in it also (laughs) i hear you definitely unfortunately but definitely yeah yeah 